Hello, thanks for tuning in to the West Side Podcast. This is where we're going to be posting some of the audio from our gatherings on Sundays, and we're hoping to develop some other content that we're excited to share with you in the future. West Side's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus, step by step. And we really hope that this podcast helps you do just that. We hope it helps you get closer to Jesus. We hope that you would be reconciled to God and not only that, be reconciled to the relationships around you and to the city that you live in, wherever that happens to be. Again, thanks for tuning in and enjoy. Hey, so we, we've, uh, we've done three weeks in this sermon series called Pandemic Proof. And uh, if you missed last, last week we were doing church, uh, we did a tailgater and we, we did an outdoor movie night, which was super fun. But the week before that, if you missed Scott Hill, um, when he got a chance to speak and talk about how we're built for community, you don't want to miss it. You should get online, get on the podcast, watch it, um, listen to it, because it was really, 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 really good. He brought something so important for our church. Um, and tonight, you know, we usually preach, I usually preach from a certain text, just take a text from the scripture and and, and talk about it, but um, we usually don't bounce around. But tonight I'm going to bounce around, okay, if that's all right with you. I'm going to bounce around to a couple different scriptures. Um, but uh, I, uh, I went backpacking with my boys. It's our annual backpacking trip that, we, that we've taken for like, I don't know, five years. And our, we, our, our equipment gets better and better as we go. And this last time that we went a couple weeks ago, we went up um, into uh, to the Rosary Lakes, kind of by Lake Odell, and um, we did the we did all hammocks this time. So no tents. We just did the hammocks, and it was the it was my boys Jeremiah and Williams' first time sleeping in the hammock, and. Um, and so when we get all ready to go for backpacking, you have to make sure that you have all the right stuff, right? Because it's nothing, it's nothing worse than getting up there and you're like, oh no, I forgot my stove, you know, or I for, you know, there's just things you don't want to forget. And so um, we get all staged. Christy loves this part because our stuff is everywhere, you know, for like two days, we have it all laid out, make sure we have everything we need. And... Um, and because the, you can't like you can't just leave extra stuff in the car. That's not how backpacking works. The car is long gone when you're up there. And so I, I asked the boys to pack their clothes and show me before they pack in their backpack what clothes they're choosing to bring on the backpacking trip. Because this ain't my first rodeo, people. All right. I know how this works. All right. So I asked the boys to to show me their clothes. And so they, they pack, their, they get their clothes that they're going to bring and they bring it to me. William, he had kind of like a, you know, he had a, a bigger, a, a bigger um, kind of group of clothes. Jeremiah comes to me and he brings kind of like a, like a handful of clothes, maybe like, um, like a, coconut size amount of clothes. And, and I said, hey, Jeremiah, you, you know that like it's going to be like 30 degrees at night, right? When we're up there. He's like, oh yeah, oh yeah. I was like, so, hey, I need you to go back to your room. And there's this, there's, we ha- we, you have these things in your, in your closet. They're called jackets. Have you heard of those? Yeah, you're going to need one of those. And then, oh, uh, while you're in there, you're going to need these, the, there's these magical, incredible things called pants. You're going to need to bring some pants on the backpacking trip because you just had like a t-shirt and shorts 
and, and like no socks. You know what I mean? It's just like, no, what are you thinking? Because it was cold. And he'll tell you, it was, he was really, he even brought all that stuff and he was still cold. And when we came home, I was like, imagine if I would have let you just bring your coconut size amount of clothes with you. I mean, it would have been, it would have been brutal. It would have been a very long night and it was already a long night. And, um, and I was thinking that when COVID kind of, when, when everything started, that, and this is kind of the whole premise of this sermon series, is that, is that some of us um, were, were equipped more than we knew going into it. You know, it was such a surprise. Um, but as I've reflected on everything that's happened these past couple of years, I've, I've noticed in my life and in other people's lives that some people, even though it was brutal and hard for everyone, still is, that some people really like kind of thrived in the midst of the storm and other people didn't. It was, it was just so much harder. And, and I think it's because like on the backpacking trip, there was like one thing that, that some people had in their pack, so to speak, that other people didn't, that just made them a little bit pandemic proof. And that was the whole point of what we're talking about these, is these weeks is that some people have, some of you have community like real community, like human beings that you can lean on and that they can lean on you. Community is one of these things that I've noticed that people that didn't have community going into the pandemic, it was hard. And it was a hard time to build community, right? But there was other people that had it, they had built it in better times and it kind of took them and it sustained them into the pandemic. Now, we don't know what's gonna happen in the future. There could be another pandemic or, you know, um, we go through pandemics all the time, I guess. Like you, there might be a financial pandemic that you might bump into, a relational one, a physical, you know, like, I, I don't know. There's all sorts of different versions, but life gets hard. And what you need when life gets hard is one of the things that helps us make it through is community. And here's what we know is that there is, in our world today, especially in the United States, there is a crisis of community, a crisis of community. I read this quote a couple of weeks ago, but I loved it, so I wanna read it again. Um, it says this, David Jansen says this, the 20th century will be remembered as an age of wondrous creativity. When Americans voluntarily shatter, or, uh, shattered their lives into distant and dissonant fragments, America's industries learned how to assemble atomic bombs, airplanes, iPads, and the genetic codes of life itself in the same era that American society disassembled the ancient overlap of family, food, faith, and the field of work. Americans reached for the stars as they withered their roots. That phrase has been haunting me when I, when I read it the first time. Americans reached for the stars as they withered their roots, inhabited space, but lost any sense of place. Famously, um, a guy named uh, Robert Putnam wrote a book um, in the early 2000s called Bowling Alone. And the reason why I called it Bowling Alone is because he did research and it turns out bowling at that time was up. More people were bowling than ever before. But the problem is, is people were bowling alone. The bowling was up, but people aren't bowling together anymore. They're going and they're bowling alone. And so the whole book is just, just start, launched really like a revolution of people asking the question, what's happening to us? Why are, we, why are we so disconnected from community where maybe in the past, in past times, we were more connected? And um, 
sociologists talk about this all the time. They talk about how oftentimes in the, in the vacuum of having real community, we settle for pseudo community. We settle for surface level community. We settle for fake community. Um, I think it's funny to me that you can get people with a, sh- with a shared interest together and then put the word community on it. And then all of a sudden there's an authority in the world. You know, um, I was talking to a guy not too long ago and he collected hacky sacks. Remember hacky sacks? He collects hacky sacks. And I was like, how'd you get into hacky sack collecting? And he's like, well, I'm just part of the hacky sack community. I was like, did you guys know that there's a hacky sack community? There is. I did some Googling online this week for just like random communities that are out there. And, and I ran it, I bumped into a lot of weird stuff, some communities that I can't sh- share at church. So I did the uh, heavy lifting and Googled it for you so you don't have to. But uh, did, you, did you guys know that there's an ice chewing community out there? There's people that love chewing ice. Yes, there's a community. You can go connect with people that chew ice. It's just so funny to me that you just shared interests, slap the word community on it, and all of a sudden like, oh, we've got community, which is just, it's, it seems so, so strange. It's like, um, I'm a Duck fan. I went to the U of O, and so, you know, I, and it's fun when you see other Duck fans. In fact, I was in Latvia, of all places, on a mission trip, and I'm walking down the street, and I see a guy across the street with a Duck shirt on, and I was like, go Ducks! And he was like, what's up, you know? And it's like all of a sudden, we didn't, we've never met each other, but we're in Latvia and all of a sudden we're best buds, you know? And we just like chat for a little bit. Um, but you know, you could go to a duck game and somebody scores a touchdown and everybody could be cheering. The emotions are high, you know, like everybody's just cheering loudly. And you could be standing there cheering, like go ducks, go, oh, that's so amazing. And my marriage is imploding. I'm in soul aching pain. And you could turn to a friend and you could say like, hey, man, my marriage is rough right now. And they'd look at you holding their beer like, like, bro, that's not what we're doing here. You know, like we're, we're here for the duck game. You know, like that's not what we're doing. It's incredible that you could have shared experience. You could have heightened ex- experience and high emotions with people around shared interests. And yet, and yet be bankrupt. Of, of real community, of real things. That Harvard, um, Harvard Divinity School did a, did a research project on why young people are leaving church. And they discovered that their need for community was often being fed by other, by other groups, by other institutions rather. And one of the ones that they mentioned was CrossFit. It's CrossFit. So here's a, here's a quote from somebody who's really into their CrossFit gym. Listen to this. It says, my CrossFit gym is everything to me. I've met my boyfriend and some of my very best friends through CrossFit. When my boyfriend and I started apartment hunting this spring, we immediately zeroed in on the neighborhood closest to our gym. Even though it would increase our commute to work, we did this because we couldn't bear to leave our community. At our gym, we have babies and little kids crawling around everywhere, and it has been an amazing experience to watch those little ones grow up. CrossFit is family, laughter, love, and community. I can't imagine my life without the people I've met through it. And I read that and I was like, man, I have testimony envy right now. <laughs> like, like that's like what a, I wish people say that about our church, you know? Like I wish people when they talk about Westside that they would say similar things than that. But the thing about CrossFit is you could be in, and I'm not picking on CrossFit, CrossFit's fine, but you could be at CrossFit and you could have people surround you around all sorts of sort of surface level things, but CrossFit has nothing to say to the profound parts of who you are. And CrossFit has nothing to speak to the deep, deep things deep in our hearts that Jesus came to deal with and wrestle with for us and with us. 
And so we can easily settle for pseudo-community and we can easily settle for pseudo-community even at church, even in here, in, in, in your local church, in the place that you call home. It's just easy to settle. It's easy to keep people at, at bay, just things at a distance and just never really, never really be known because sometimes it's just cleaner that way. Sometimes it's easier that way. And then we can settle for that pseudo-community. Thank God we have the opportunity to create something different. Thank God we actually have the opportunity to create a compelling vision for what it means to be the, hum the new humanity that Paul calls it, where especially through our relationships, through our community. So I want to define what I think, I think like biblical community is um, in, a, in, a, in a sentence. And admittedly, this is a run-on sentence. Um, my wife will probably pick it apart because she is an editor. So she, you know, this, there's, there, this needs to be like three sentences, but I'm going to, it's so for me, it's not a run-on sentence. I'm going to call it a power sentence, okay? That's what I'm calling it tonight. This is my power sentence on what, thank you, thank you for that, on what, on what uh, community actually is. So here it is. Christian community is a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knitted together as brothers and sisters and fueled by the grace of Jesus as it creates a new kind of humanity both individually and collectively, living in unity, not by eliminating differences, but by transcending them, empowered by the Holy Spirit and committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the reconciliation and renewal of the world. Doesn't that sound so much better than a group of people that just come and gather at a, at a church on Sunday when it's convenient? And that's so much better did you think that that's what, this is what we're called to rather than just come attend a service? That's, that's not what church is about. This is what we want church to be about. This is what we want community to be about is we're walking with Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, walking with each other, walking in the ways of Jesus for the renewal of the world. And if we're gonna do this, we're gonna need to heed Christ's call to love each other like he loved us. Scott talked about this, uh, but I just got to dip into it a little bit. But John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus says this, a new command I give you, love one another. Notice it's a command, not a suggestion. He says, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is just so key, isn't it? Because it's telling us that the mark of a disciple, the mark of maturity in Christ isn't how much, how much you speak in tongues. It's not how much Bible you know. It's not how many verses you have memorized. It's not, um, you know, it's not how many stickers are on your car or how many small groups you're a part of or how many church services you attend. And all those things are great things. But notice that the mark of maturity in Christ is that we love one another. And not by our world's definition of love, but by the, God's definition of love. How, we're supposed to love each other as he loved us. And Jesus says this in Luke chapter 6, and this is haunting. He says, if you love those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Jesus says, if, you love, if, you, if your love is, if you just love people that love you, why should you get any credit for that? So that's how, that's how everybody else does it. That's how the world does it. 
And isn't it true? That's how the world does it. In our culture, we love those who like us. We love those who agree with us. But as soon as relationships get hard, as soon as someone disagrees with me, we, as soon as somebody has a different political viewpoint as I do, then we ghost people out and we move to another church. In the world out there, how often it happens is differences become boundaries with so many ideologies and competing visions for who the good people are. We've become divided into these little tribes based on preferences and secondary issues. And we start believing that we're better than other people. And we look at other people and when, we look, when I look at you and say, hey, you don't care like I care about the things that I care about. Then suddenly when I get to that point, then suddenly I can look at you and then I don't have to care about you because you don't care about the things as much as, as, I, as, as I care about things. Because I'm the good person and you're the bad person. And we, we start defining who, what, who, what goodness is and what badness is and it just fractures us apart and just moves us away. And we lose the ability to listen and we lose the ability to love each other while disagreeing with each other. And thank God Christ gives us a different vision to display to the world of what community is supposed to look like. Thank God he's given us the kind, he, we're supposed to create a kind of community that is a witness to the rest of the world because we don't do it here like they do. We don't do it here like the rest of the world does. Then when somebody disagrees agrees with me, I just, just don't, I just don't leave them in the dust. Because that's, that, why should I get any credit for just loving people that love me? That's easy. Everybody can do that. Jesus says, what I'm calling, to, calling you to is something so, so much better, so much harder so much better. And it's going to be a witness to the world that you are my disciples because you're loving one another like I loved you. Jesus says your love has to be different than the so-called love of the world. That's why Jesus, when he talks about what the church is, looks like, or Paul rather, he talks about how the church is supposed to be like a body because we have all these body parts and it's a brilliant metaphor. It's so helpful. When Paul talks about, here's what the church should be like. It's like a body because I've got a hand and I got a knee and they're very different from each other and they have different functions, but they need each other. They need each other. And the hand can't say to the knee, like, you're lame, you're dumb, I don't need you. And the knee can't say to the hand, like, come on, you know? I mean, because it, it, we have to acknowledge that we need each other. That helps our pride diminish. It helps, it helps push that self-righteousness out. And we have distinctions, but we still have unity. So here's what I wanna do. Um, and I'm just leading us, I'm leading us somewhere because I think it's important. I, I wanna just look at a couple different things in, in the scriptures that talk about the diversity of the church. The diversity of the church, that we are called to be different than everyone else. Everywhere else, it's, it's, it's a, the world talks about diversity, but yet if somebody disagrees with us, then all of a sudden I can't be friends with you. And the church is supposed to be a different, different kind of community where we don't eradicate differences, but we transcend them because the power of the gospel and the unity that comes through the gospel is more powerful than our politics. It's more powerful than our preferences. That's what he's calling us to, but we have to, we have to enter into it. I just want us to look at a couple things about the early church, and I just find them so helpful because they're, I think they're, they're models for us. Um, I wanna talk about the diversity of the early church. I wanna talk about the diversity of the early church leaders and then the diversity of the disciples themselves. So, hey, first, uh, the diversity of the early church. There's a quote by, Stop, by Scott McKnight, one of my favorite um, 
theologians. He says this, hierarchy, status, reputation, and connections were the empire. He's talking about the Roman empire. The context in which Christianity was birthed and, and, and expanded and just spread out throughout the rest of the world. He says in the Roman empire, it was all about status, reputation, connections. The church though, was not the empire. So when the Christians gathered to worship, to fellowship, to meet and to eat, the ruthless, divisive and status shaped backbone of the empire snapped. There would be no slave and no free in the church. There would be no Roman, no Greek, no Egyptian and no barbarian. This was God's grand social experiment. And the Romans from elites to the slaves experienced the church as nothing short of a wild revolution of equality. It was the message that spoke to the whole Roman empire. These Christians were so different. When the Romans were divided by, by all sorts of different class and, and, and gender and everything else, the Christians weren't. The Christians gathered together, different classes, different, different genders, just all these different groups of people, they came together. And it was a testimony to the world. Uh, I'm, I mentioned I'm, we're gonna start the book of Colossians next week. I'm so excited. When you get to the end of book Colossians, um, Paul, writing from prison, mentions, mentions a guy named Onesimus. And it's like a little bit of a, you're like, oh, Onesimus, I've heard that name before. And if you've read the, the, new, the little tiny New Testament book of Philemon, you'll be like, oh, that's where Onesimus comes in. Because Paul mentions Onesimus in Colossians. And in the book of Philemon in the New Testament, Paul is writing to Philemon, who's who was the former slave owner of Onesimus. Onesimus was Philemon's, was Philemon's slave. He was, he, was, he was a servant in his house. But Onesimus runs away and, and works with Paul. Both Philemon and Onesimus are become Christ followers. And so Paul has to write a letter to Philemon back. And here's what he says to Philemon. He says, hey, Philemon, Onesimus is coming back into your community. You guys are going to be a part of the same church. And here's what Paul says. You are no longer going to receive him as a slave. You're going to receive him as a brother. Nowhere else did this happen. But the gospel makes this kind of stuff happen. The early church was marked by their diversity. They're so different. What about the diversity of the early church leaders? Um, from Acts chapter 13, here's a list of some of the leaders in the church of Antioch. Listen to this. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Okay, just a little list of, uh, you know, you, you, when, you, when you're in Acts and you read that, you kind of just move along. You know, you're like, want to know what's going to happen. And it just tells us who was some of the early church leaders in the church of Antioch. But it gives us a couple details here that are so important. Let's just zoom in a little bit. First, we have um, Barnabas. Um, he's from Cyprus and he's a Hellenistic Jew. We know that. And then we have Menaean. And Menaean, you'll notice that um, Luke, the writer of Acts, goes to the trouble to let us know that he had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. And so, you know, you have to be like, okay, well, why, why is that important? Like, who, who, why do we care who he grew up with, you know? But if you know, if you, if you know the backstory, the Herods were not a really strong family tree. In fact, if you were to go to Ancestry.com and look it up, and you've, if you were to find out that you were a part of the Herod family, that's not good news. <laughs> 
That's, it's a very dysfunctional family. And Herod the Tetrarch, he really comes up. We talk about him at Christmas, or I'm sorry, at, um, um, at, uh, when we talk about Easter and the crucifixion of Jesus, because Herod the Tetrarch, like he hears that Jesus is, is arrested and is gonna go to trial and maybe go to the cross. But Herod hears that uh, Jesus does some magic tricks. So he's like, hey, let's get David Blaine to come over and do some magic tricks for us and you know, entertain us. And so Jesus comes and Herod's like, do a miracle. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not gonna do a miracle. And then Herod's like, well then, you know, send it back to Pilate and they, they put him on the cross. This is, this, is, this is Herod the Tetrarch and there's so much more messed up stuff about Herod the Tetrarch. And what we're supposed to know here is that one of the early leaders of the church in Antioch grew up, was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And he's in the inner circle of the leadership of this church. And then we have Simeon called Niger. Simeon is of unknown origin. We don't know where he's from, but they called him Niger, which is Latin for black. And so every commentary, every church historian says, what, the only thing that we know about Simeon is that his skin was black. And then we have Lucius, who's from Cyrene, and he's an, that means he's an African. And then we have Saul slash Paul, but we you know the story, you know that Saul is, you know, he had a whole other life before he encountered the risen Jesus. And so, you know, he persecuted Christians and killed Christians. And, but then his life gets radically changed. And when you look at this group of early church leaders, you're supposed to think of like a reality television show, that if you were a producer of a reality television show, you would get the, the people who didn't connect, you know, who didn't gel with each other the most, put them, make them all live in the same house together and just let the cameras roll. Because there's going to be Drama, because every single one of these people um, would have been trained from birth to despise the other men on the list, to feel superior to the other men on the list, to position themselves as more intelligent and more intrinsically valuable than the other men on the list. And then the gospel shows up and blows all that garbage to kingdom come. Because this is what the gospel does. All of their differences all of the things that in normal life would have just ripped them apart from one another and caused factions and, and disunity. Now, because of the gospel, their differences aren't eradicated. No, their differences are transcended because the gospel is bigger and deeper. What about the diversity of the disciples? You got Matthew. This is from Matthew chapter 10. There's a list of the disciples. Uh, these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, Iscariot who betrayed Jesus. Can you just leave this, uh, Terry, leave this up for me if you could. But um, here's a list of the apostles. We get a couple extra details about a few of them, don't we? I think it's intentional. We get a couple extra details. Um, first, it reminds us what Matthew used to do for a job. What did Matthew used to do? He's a tax collector. Now, we don't have time to go into it today. I wish we could, but you know, a tax collector, Matthew would have been despised. He would have been absolutely despised by the Romans and especially by the Jews. This is somebody who sold out, to, sold out his people for a buck. This is somebody who's very swarmy, who's like, you know, make, making people pay things that they shouldn't, you know, just making people pay things that they shouldn't have to pay. I mean, this is, this is somebody that most, that all the Jews would have despised. And we're being reminded that Matthew was a tax collector. Jesus walks up to Matthew, says, follow me. You know how scandalous that would have been. You know who else we have on the list? We have Simon the Zealot. Now we don't use the word zealot that much, but Simon the Zealot is, 
part of a group of people in that day who were absolutely fanatically just opposed to what the Romans were doing. So opposed that their strategy, the zealots, their strategy was to like take, was to push the Romans back by force. So this isn't like just, you know, subtly resist. This is like pick up your sword and resist Rome. You know, think, think Robin Hood stealing from the rich to give to the poor minus the tights. That's this guy. He's, he's like Robin Hood against the Romans. And, he's, and he's, he's part of this group that, would, that was just radical. And Jesus asked him to come and follow him. Who, what two people do you think in Jesus' small group that he's got going on here have the highest chance of absolutely butting heads? It's Matthew and Simon. And yet, and yet, these are, the, these are the disciples. Last but not least, we have Judas. And it always strikes me that when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, when he took off his outer robe, you know that moment where it's such a beautiful moment, Jesus takes off his robe and they're, they're like, and, and they can tell that Jesus, their, their rabbi, their, their, the, that he's gonna wash their feet and they say, no, are you kidding me? And Jesus says, no, I'm gonna wash your feet. And Jesus washes their feet and he washes, washes Judas's too. He washes Judas's feet too. And then Jesus says, as I have loved you, love one another. As I have washed your feet, as I washed Judas's feet, I want you to love others with the same kind of love. So my question, my question is how diverse is your love? How diverse is your love? And if your love is diverse, then prove it to me. Show it to me. You know, they did a study not long ago, a couple years ago, about in the 60s, the, that the average parent was, was when, when, their, when their child was coming home with a date, that their biggest concern was if the date was, that they were bringing home was somebody from another race. In the 60s, that was, that was the, the typical parent's biggest concern. Now, now it's your child bringing home somebody who's a part of a different political party than you. And this is where I get really, really concerned for the future of the church in America. This is where I get really, really concerned. I'm not concerned for our, I mean, I'm concerned for our church, but I mean, this is why we're talking about it because I don't want this to be our story, but I'm concerned about the church in the United States. Because here's what we do is in the church in the United States, and this is what you've observed over this last two years and what I've observed, it's, it's part of like what we do as humans, but it has been exacerbated by what's happened with COVID and everything else that happened that in, in this last year. But here's what we do is 
All the pre-trib people go to this church. All the post-trib people go go to that church. All the complementarians go to this church and all the egalitarians go to this church. All the Trump supporters go to this church. All the Biden supporters go to this church. All the maskers go to this church. All the non-maskers go to this church. All the vaccinated people go to this church. All the unvaccinated people go to this church. All the conservatives end up going to this church. All the, the progressive people go to this church. The, the blue churches throughout this last, this is what makes me concerned. The blue churches are getting more blue and the red churches are getting more red. And it's ironic to me in an age where we are so talk about how, di- how we love diversity, that the Christian church is becoming more homogenous and less diverse over theological, over secondary theological differences and personal preferences. And I don't think that's good for the church at all. I don't think that's good for the church at all. You know what we used to say here in Eugene for years is all kinds of churches for all kinds of people. We used to say that a lot. And part of that I get. Every different church has a different culture. You know, like every church has kind of got a, got a different feel. That's okay. Churches are, hey, churches are supposed to be different. Some are gonna be like a hand, some are gonna be like a knee, you know, because the job is big and the Holy Spirit needs all different kinds of churches. Here's what's not healthy, is churches where if I'm offended by your politics, then I don't have to, I'm not going to be your friend. In fact, I'll go to the other church that agrees with my politics. I'm going to go to the other church that agrees with my opinion about this. I'm going to go to the other church that agrees with my opinion about this. I'm going to go to the other church that agrees with my opinion about this. Suddenly you're surrounded with people who agree with everything that you agree with. And you think that you have done yourself a favor by getting to a place where you don't have to be offended by anything. And let me tell you, that's a dangerous place to be. Because now you don't have to love people like Jesus said. Jesus said, if you love people that love you, why should you get credit for that? What the world doesn't need is just a bunch of churches that are just getting together with other people that have all the same opinions about everything and just huddling together and just villainizing everybody else because they don't care about the same things that you care about in the way that you care about it. That is not helping the world at all. Do you know what's gonna help the world? is if we do what the, what the early church did. It's one of the reasons why Christianity spread everywhere. It's one of the reasons why you couldn't stop it. They, couldn't, they tried to kill every Christian they could find and still it exploded through the globe. Why? It's one of the, well, it's because they saw a dead man alive is why. But it was because they followed Jesus's words and they created communities that were, just, that were just powerful, where, where if you were offended, you didn't just go and leave, that you had to work through the difficulty of what that meant because maybe somebody offends you and maybe you need to be offended. Maybe it's gonna help offend you right out of your hypocrisy. Maybe it's gonna offend you right out of your, your, your self-righteousness. I don't know, but if we just run away from, from all offenses, then that's gonna weaken the church, not strengthen the church. And so Westside, I just wanna call us I want to call us to be the kind of church where we could be two-handed in our faith. You've heard me talk about this a lot, and I don't have the time to expound on it. I'll talk about it at Pizza with the Pastors tomorrow night. But two-handed in our faith, meaning, meaning the things that are, that, are, that are 
like essentials, undeniably true. We're going to hold those in a closed hand. But the things over here, there's going to be some differences of opinion about all sorts of things. And we're going to hold those in an open hand. Because if we disagree about these things in the closed hand, hey, we can still love each other. But hey, there might be a, be a more appropriate church for us to go to because these are the things we're not going to compromise on. But the stuff that we hold in an open hand, this stuff isn't going to divide us. In fact, we can have robust opinions, differences of opinions. We can have differences, but we're not gonna, we're not gonna have to eradicate all of them. We're gonna transcend all of these because the gospel is stronger than your preferences and your politics. It just is. It has to be. If it's not strong enough, if it's not strong enough to do that, then we have nothing to offer the world. Okay, I need to wrap it up. Band, will you guys come back up? Um, here's what I want you to do. I want you to ponder that question. How diverse is your love? How diverse is it? Are you heeding the call of Jesus to love others like he loved us? And part of that means that is loving people who disagree with you. Loving people that you have differences of opinion about things. What does it look like for us to create a community where we can love each other through those things to be a witness to the world that Jesus can do incredible miracles in a group of people that are very diverse? What if we could offer the world that? I just got a couple things I want you to do. I want you to be first an inviter, okay? I want you to be an inviter. Um, one of the ways that we, con we, we combat that, that tendency in us to just congregate with people that are like us is to just be intentional about being an inviter. That means um, there's, invite somebody over to your house for a dinner. Invite somebody out for coffee, you know? Um, just be an inviter. Don't wait for someone to invite you. Let's have a culture here where we take the responsibility on ourselves to be inviting. And when everyone's doing that, then man, people, people aren't slipping through the cracks. People can actually get into community. Next is this, is be a fighter. Be an inviter and then be a fighter. And here's the thing about true friendship, is true friendships, true friends, they fight for, for each other and they fight with each other. Did you know that? True friends, they fight for each other and they fight with each other. <laughs> of course, friends fight for each other. We need to fight, we need to get each other's backs. When, you, when I'm weak, you can be strong. And when, you, when, when you're weak, and then I'll be strong. I mean, this is one of the things we need to contend for one another. But you know that a good friend also tells the truth in love? That a good friend sometimes will confront you because they care about you? that this is the kind of, this is what happens in community if we're doing it right. There's gonna be tension and that's okay because we need each other to come alongside and help identify things that I, that, that I can't see, the things that you can't see. You know, there's Proverb 27, six says this, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Wounds aren't fun. Who likes to be wounded? Not me, but wounds from a friend can be trusted. Sometimes we need to be wounded by a friend so that we can see our own hypocrisy, so we can see some things that we can't see. Sometimes we need it. Are we willing to be friends like that to one another? Or if somebody confronts you about something, just go to another church. You don't even have to listen to it, but then you're not gonna grow. Christ's character is not gonna be formed in you. And so are we willing to fight for each other, but to fight with each other in love, because the gospel is real and because it matters and because we care about one another. And lastly, um, I want to encourage us to just let your theology be stronger than the, world's, than the world's truncated, sort of minimized version of diversity. Let your theology be stronger. What's your theology? Well, what's our theology? Well, first, the incarnation. 
Jesus came to us and pursued us when we were still sinners. What's in our theology? That Jesus has a stubborn, loyal love for you. He has a stubborn, loyal love for you. And so if that's our theology, then is that gonna be, let's let that shine through in how we engage and, and have our relationships with, with one another. How diverse is your love? Are you willing to fight for community? Are you willing to get into a community group? That's gonna be hard because that means you gotta get to know people. You might get into a community group where somebody voted for somebody else than you did. <gasps> oh no. Well, we can't have that. Let's go to another church where everybody voted like you, you know? No, why would we do that? You get into a community group and now you're, now you're listening, now you're learning, now you're growing, now you're being challenged. Now, now, now we're, we're showing the world that the gospel really can transform our hearts and our lives and our community. I'll pray. Father, we just respond to you tonight. Um, and we just say, Lord, we need this. I mean, I feel like I need this. That we want our love to be marked by how you love. Would you help us do it? Holy Spirit, would you help us? Would you help us tap into just what everyone thought about that early church? The early church, it was just a testimony to the world because they, because they didn't let their, their differences of opinion on secondary issues shatter their community and their unity. They just didn't. And Lord, I pray that that would be us too, that our unity would be strong because we are building our lives on the firm foundation of the gospel. Lord, let that be a testimony to everyone that we meet. Anyone that comes in to our church that just sees our community, that they would see people loving each other like you loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.